0: Hi, I'm Laura Brady, CEO of Concierge Auctions.
1: And hi, I'm Chad Roffers, chairman of Concierge Auctions.
0: And this is Block Talk. It's a webcast and podcast series where we're going to talk about all things luxury real estate and also what's happening on the auction block, what our experience with Concierge Auctions is today. Today, we're going to look at the top luxury real estate markets across the U.S., specifically and we're also going to talk about some case studies of our experience in March. We had a number of auctions in the month of March that were all successful sales. In fact, we sold six properties, had a 100% success rate. And so we want to talk about some of our findings with that and what we expect in the environment moving forward.
1: We're going into our 12th year of business, and you know we are exclusively focused on the luxury property market around the globe and solely focused on selling properties through the auction platform. A couple things that I think are important to point out is that we're very um, agent friendly and centric. And what we mean by that is in the history of our business, we've never conducted a sale without partnering with a local listing broker. And of course, offering out a co-broke opportunity for the local real estate community to bring buyers to the given property. And it's something that we feel strongly about. You know, There's a number of reasons for that. Above and beyond everything else, we think it allows us to get the best possible price for our seller. And we know when the brokerage community in a given market is working alongside us to bring as many buyers and eyeballs to a given property, the results are just better. So, that's the why behind that. And Laura and I have a deep background in the luxury real estate business prior to starting this business. So we have an appreciation for and respect for the people who are really good in this business. And we love working alongside you and and in conjunction with you. So Laura, you want to take this one?
0: So also our business thus far has spanned 40 U.S. states and 29 countries as far as where we have auctioned properties. And our database is now over 640,000 contacts throughout 210 countries. So it's interesting for us also to be able to watch all of these different markets as they're acting in real time. One thing that we've found is that since our auctions are a very accelerated timeframe, meaning that when we bring a property to sale, we are marketing it only for about 30 to 45 days on average, we see a very strong lot of momentum around buyer interest in these properties. And also because of the geographic distribution, we're able to watch all of these markets in real time interact with all of you, whether it's real estate agents, buyers, sellers, or other opinion leaders in these markets and, and watch the trends. Trends that are going on in different markets and how clients are migrating and moving from different attributes that they're looking for in properties and or different health of different markets. So we're going to talk a little bit about our experience in watching the entire luxury real estate landscape and how, first off, properties performed (laughs) in 2019. We're going to reveal some of the data that we researched about the the year in 2019 and then also what that means for the current environment, some of the anecdotes that we're experiencing today that might lend to adjustments from the trends that were going on in 2019. So what's really happening at the upper end of the market, the data that I just mentioned is something that we've done for four years in a row. We've analyzed the top luxury markets throughout the US and have published a luxury market index. So we're gonna give y'all some sneak peek information into that index today. Um, Specifically, the index analyzes the 10 highest sales. So the properties that were most expensive that sold in the 56 top luxury markets that we've selected and also specifically digging into not only the prices that the properties sold for but the amount of time that the properties were listed for sale before they ultimately sold with that the the total days on market we have four years now of research into these trends in these different markets so we're going to tell you a little bit about that
1: this is our fourth year of 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 publishing this index and um, it's t- currently focused on uh, North America, although we plan next year to add some European markets. And you know, I think it's also important to point out that this is a, a, you know, a very deep dive into the very tippy top of the market, right? So the ultra ultra luxury transactions in these 56 markets. So I think it's important um, to note that certainly as you go down price point, certainly um, you know, trends can be different. Um, but we're focused as a business in the upper tier. And so this is where we really focus our energy. But ultimately what we've learned, and and this has been very consistent over the last four years, and, and quite frankly, what we knew about luxury real estate long before is, is that properties either sell very quickly and very quickly in the ultra luxury market is 180 days or less for 90 plus percent of their list price or the days on market And percentage of list price grows, you know, the days on market grow dramatically to, you know, close to three years and the sale price drops to, you know, 70 plus percent, uh, plus or minus of list price. So very much driven by the Zillow world that we now live in and virtually in almost every market, certainly in the U.S., it's public information about the history of a property, how long it's been for sale, the last time it sold. Has it been through multiple listing agents, price reductions, et cetera? Our thesis is, is that buyers are using that information to guide how desirable a property is. And if a property comes on the market, and it's something they like and they make an offer, there's a good chance that that transaction gets done. But if the property sits for certainly 180 days in some markets, maybe not even as many as 90, a buyer really starts to question, you know, well, how interesting is this property? And they step back and there's really kind of a vicious cycle where sellers now are on their heels and price reduction is really the only option other than switching brokers. And we actually think that compounds the problem in terms of training buyers continue to wait for that next price reduction.
0: So our findings from 2019 were that of the properties that we analyzed, two thirds of them took more than six months to sell and 19% of them took more than two years to sell. This is something that's also consistent in sales of other goods, right? If if something is exciting and it comes out of the gates exciting, then it will sell for a, a You know better value and more quickly. That is this area of the pie chart that's at the top right, 33% of the properties sold in less than 180 days. But of the ones that did not sell quickly out of the gates, they typically stay on the market for prolonged periods of time and, and linger on the market. So the net numbers of this can be seen in this chart here. The top line shows of these properties that lingered that were on the market for over 180 days. We actually had been seeing a decline in days on market over the past four years. Now we're going to discuss in a little while what some of our predictions without having a crystal ball, but just experiencing the current market dynamics are. But you know you can see here that the properties that were listed for over hundred and eighty days in 2015, the average, was almost a 1,000 days that that property was listed for sale. And we do a lot of digging into all of the days that the property has been listed through if it had had multiple real estate agents or gone through multiple MLS periods. Many local market stacks, if you pull straight out of the multiple listing service, they may report only the most recent MLS listings days on market. But we actually do the digging through our data analytics group to add up all of the days that it in fact had been listed on and off the market if it wasn't off for a prolonged period of time. So those days decreased from approximately a thousand days in 2015 to in 2019, closer to 700 days. With that said, the average of all of the properties, whether they sold quickly or whether they lingered on the market, this is perhaps the most interesting because people can say, great, My house is the best in the market. I know that it's going to sell right out of the gates. But even if they look at the average property that sold has been hovering between 550 days and 600 days, as far as the amount of time that it spends on the market. Again, this is the top 10 sales in the top 50 luxury markets. We want to just touch on briefly some of the other findings. Final sale price, this shows the fluctuation between 11 million and 13 million on average of the properties that we have been researching. So again, top 10 sales in the top luxury markets hovering on average between 12 million down to 11 in 2017 and then climbing for the past 2 years. Percentage of list price, again here we're dissecting the difference between the properties that sell in less than 180 days, which is the top line there, with the uh, clear circles or the the white circles, those sold for over 90% of their list price on average, then the properties that lingered on the market for more than 180 days is the line at the bottom that fluctuated between 72% of list price in 2015 to up to about 80% of list price in 2019. So again, continuing to step up a little bit over the past four years, I think that everyone on this call would agree that we've been in a healthy real estate market for the past five years, right? And this trend shows that it's become, you know, slightly more healthy year over year for the past four years in the luxury space. So we have some call outs here about how different luxury markets that we analyze have ranked um, in the different categories that we're watching within our research. I think that it would be interesting right now, also, Chad, maybe to point out some of the anecdotes that we're experiencing in today's environment, because this research, again, is from 2019. So a few things that that we've been talking about, definitely with the COVID crisis and the you know markets changing right now, there's been some sentiment that we've been hearing from different buyers along the lines of, some examples are that, People are learning the ability to work remotely in a lot of different roles. So we've seen more and more buyers that have considered purchasing homes, changing their primary residence from a metro market that they had been in for years to going to more of a, you know, lifestyle type of second home, traditionally second home market. Like if you can live in Aspen, right, and you had previously been living in Chicago or somewhere else, not that Chicago's not fabulous, it is, but you may want to have a change of pace and, you know, move your family to Aspen if you can now work remotely.
1: The other thing we're seeing, and you'll see this in the data, and I think all of us certainly you know have seen this in some of the kind of suburban markets that, you know, the Northeast, the Midwest, in California where kind of the larger some would call them mcmansion type properties and and legitimate mansion properties in these suburban areas have been very tough sells because demand has been urban new smaller turnkey and i think if there's a piece of silver lining in in some of the trends for sellers in some of these suburban markets that have had really tough sells and and really steep days on market and a lot of competition you know there may be some opportunity Coming out of this, to Laura's point, around people really valuing space, people really valuing um, the ability to not be confined to a small apartment or a condo in an urban environment. You know, certainly, you know, we'll see that. However, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about this. But in the last two weeks, we've sold properties in in both New York, California, internationally, and and we had a property in San Francisco which was a very hard hit uh, market from a COVID perspective. And we had a very competitive auction and a deep field of bidders. So we'll obviously see what the long-term and medium-term consequences are of, of COVID, of course.
0: Yeah, we actually had a call with our advisory board of real estate agents and brokers yesterday. And Seth O'Byrne, who's from San Diego, um, he mentioned that really space is the new currency, wanting to you know have more space, um, bigger homes, more privacy perhaps is definitely different today than it was three months ago. So some of the findings from 2019, average sale price. These are the two markets where average sale price jumped the largest amount between 2018 and 2019. Again, looking at the top 10 sales in these markets, homeby Hills and Boston. The properties where there was the steepest decline in-sale price, um, Westlake Village and Kauai. Properties where average days on market were decreasing the most substantially. So properties were flying off the shelves, for lack of a better term, in these two markets versus others. Sonoma and Seattle had very healthy 2019s with movement. And then ones that properties were lingering longer than they had in years past, Vero Beach and Denver. And then percentage list price. So this is property selling close to what they were asking. Rhode Island and Park City saw the highest percentage of sale price versus their list price. And then the ones with the biggest differential, Fairfield County and Las Vegas. Now, Fairfield County is one that's interesting. In past years, Fairfield has had a, a pretty tough time recovering since two thousand and eight. Um, there's been a lot of inventory, a big differential between what sellers are wanting to get for their homes versus what buyers are willing to pay. But in fact, in the past few weeks, um I know that there have been quite a few sales in Fairfield as people are you know moving out of the city.
1: Certainly, you know Fairfield County, which also includes Greenwich, although it's a separate MLS, so we break out Greenwich separately. But you're right. I mean, it's been a really tough market, a lot of inventory. And not only has the product been kind of out of whack with what buyer demand was, but but also got hit pretty hard with the tax reform with a lot of people from really the entire Northeast relocating to more tax friendly markets because of the salt tax cap on property taxes, you know. You know, being able to be written off your tax return. It'll be interesting to see markets that are very much dependent on Wall, especially in the luxury market, dependent on Wall Street. And will it be interesting to see how Wall Street does in terms of jobs coming out of COVID? It's been in a pretty vicious kind of consolidation um, mode since post 8 The very, very top have been done very well, but there's been you know a lot of consolidation and smaller, leaner organizations, and a lot of private equity type. You know, firms have picked up shop from the Northeast and moved to tax friendly places like Florida and elsewhere.
0: Las Vegas also came up yesterday in our agent advisory board call. Kristen Ruth Soberman with the Sotheby's group there is on our advisory board. And certainly Vegas with the stop in tourism has had a pretty tremendous impact in the past few weeks. But she was discussing the difference in two thousand eight when the crash occurred. Most of the owners in Vegas didn't have equity in their homes or what they had, you know, the, the year before values had dropped so low that they no longer had equity. Whereas today there's more equity present in the market there. So remains to be seen how, you know, the recovery happens over the coming weeks and months. But that was her personal take on Vegas.
1: I mean, certainly, you know, we're in the business, oftentimes you know somebody will ask me, you know, what do you do for a living? And and tongue in cheek, I'll say, you know, I sell control. And that usually will be sometimes interesting, the, the answer I get back from that. But ultimately, we work for sellers and in conjunction and with alongside agents to help sellers who want to take the control back in the sales process of selling an asset that they no longer want. And especially in the, in the luxury market, when you think about how much control we have in our life today and how fast. We expect something to happen. When it comes to selling a luxury property, as the data shows, it's either going to happen very quickly or potentially you're in for a really long haul. And and for the affluent seller, it's really frustrating. And especially it's frustrating no matter what, but especially in this Uber world that we live in, where Amazon Prime world that you live in, or we live in that you can get what you want when you want it on the timeframe you want it that becomes a frustration. And so that's our number one value proposition for seller, which is in 60 days from the day that you call us to closing on the property and getting a check from the closing agent, we can accomplish that goal for you. And and in balance, and our clientele historically are very well healed people. I mean, in the last Five years, we've sold properties for you know, or transacted with like fifty-five or sixty billionaires, among others. And so, people aren't coming to us because they have to sell, but they're coming to us because they want control, they want certainty, and but they also want to know they're maximizing price. And I think that's the other thing that's important about our process is not only can we accomplish a sale and, and in a, an accelerated or more efficient time frame but a seller can, at the end of our process, which on average will generate between 300 and 500 buyer inquiries, and on average generate between 25 and 50 showings, and on average have five to seven bidders signed up for a property. At the end of that process, it's hard to argue that that's not the current market value for a property. And then the flip side, when you look at buyers, and I think this is really important, and in in, you know the reason why I think we, you saw we had tremendous success in the month of March, and we'll talk about the geographic diversity, but really all over the world. I think that especially in an uncertain market, sometimes there's the fear of overpaying or people just aren't sure what to do. And so they don't do anything. Also, when you talk about a very high end property and perhaps one that's been for sale for a long time, I don't care how much money you have. Nobody wants to feel like they've overpaid. And so, you know, they, they just won't do anything. There's this kind of strange phenomenon where people won't even write offers because they're worried about offending the seller. It's kind of a funny thing that we see. But ultimately, what we discovered in our process is, is that buyers like the transparency of knowing, okay, how many other people am I competing with? What are their offers? And if I want this property, am I willing to outbid them? We had a sale a week before last in San Francisco in conjunction with Greg Lynn with Sotheby's, one of the top agents in that market historically, and and one of the top producing agents actually globally. Ultimately, we had the property sold for around $4.5 you And we had somebody who registered early with a $2 million starting bid that ultimately bid well into the fours. And that's an example of somebody who was waiting to see where was the market for that given property. So I think that's really an important part of it, certainly for buyers. Also, especially in the luxury market, there's a lot of sellers who aren't real sellers. And and what I mean by that is they know an agent or an agent convinces them to list their property or whatever it is, but it's kind of like, yeah, if I get my dream price, I'll sell. And so, you know, we see that a lot in kind of the second and third home markets in particular, where somebody doesn't have to sell, but if somebody comes along and pays them an over the moon price, they'd be glad to sell. The challenge with that is it really clogs up the system, if you will. It's like the arteries of real estate, you know, those properties, the buyers don't know which sellers are motivated sellers versus aspirational sellers. And so I think our, pro- our process also really helps spotlight a property in a given market to say, hey, buyers, no matter what else you're looking at, we have a seller who's willing within reason to let the market dictate the value of their property. And you should really focus in on this property. And then the final piece for agents, as I mentioned at the beginning of the all, we've never conducted a sale without partnering with an agent. And we're unique in that regard. You know, historically in our segment of the real estate market, oftentimes a seller will come to us after their listings up for expiration. And you know, our message to them is great, but we're gonna ask you to retain your broker and you know, or Find a new one, but we expect you to do that. I think it's important for agents to know that you know we're a toolkit. You know, I remember 15 years ago when Zillow was coming on, everybody was frustrated with them. The zestimates weren't very accurate, but they certainly have carved out, put themselves at the very tippy front of the line with consumers. And whether we like it or not, zestimates and property histories are a place of reference that buyers put a lot of value in and i would argue that we're a tool for agents and more technology that you need to get comfortable with because you know not only are the macro trends around sellers expectations of how quickly something should happen buyers demands around transparency but also in this environment that we're in that's probably going to be you know some choppy water knowing how to help getting help a seller get a property sold in an efficient way is going to be important.
0: I'm just going to give a sneak peek into some of the recent case studies that we had, and then we'll open up to q and I know we've already had a number of questions submitted. Three sales that we've had within the past couple of weeks. This is the first, a property on the Big Island that we sold with Hawaii Life real estate brokers. This one had been listed for 733 days. So over two years. And our auction process was a 36-day exposure period for this property. This one, I know yesterday I was talking to the broker, Matt Beal, and we worked with Carrie Nicholson was the listing agent on this. We've worked with both of them a number of times before. This one was sold right when COVID was starting to create you know, different shelters in place in some areas, you know, there was was uncertainty about what was going to be happening, of course, that this was like right in the beginnings of the spread nationwide. And so that was interesting that we still had nine bidders participating, the buyer who ended up winning it was actually at the home while the digital bidding was going on bidding was going on just on our digital platform but he was there at the house with the agent so that was kind of fun and ultimately it achieved more than it had previously been listed for sale so that was a really fun one sold for 3.725 million And then the week after that, we sold this property in Senior Island, or actually it was two weeks after March 23rd. This was a condo. So it was an area where there are a lot of comparables, especially in today's environment with a lot of the buyers doing just virtual tours of the homes or walking around with either one of our representatives or the real estate agent. That's what's happening most with tours right now. This one out of six bidders Four of them had not been physically into the property. But with a condominium building, comparables that are otherwise in the building that are very like kind, that's one benefit of of having a condo sold by auction right now. This one sold for $1.7 million. And then Phuket, Thailand, this was a really fun sale. We had two villas in Phuket. They're in a neighborhood that we have sold other properties before, very prestigious area of Thailand. And this one, we had bidders from seven countries. In fact, we here in the U.S., we went to bed the night before this auction, and we had three bidders who registered overnight, the time difference, you know, daytime for them. But we had bidders from the U.S., the U.K., France, Russia, Singapore, Thailand, and Hong Kong. And this was on March 27th. So this was just a couple of weeks ago.
1: And um, I think it's interesting with that that particular sale. I mean, in the last two weeks, the country was on total lockdown. like very strict restrictions. I think it's just a good example of that, despite what's going on in the world, there are buyers that are ready to buy. Yeah. And you know these were uh, clearly discretionary purchases. You know, these are true second, third, fourth, fifth homes for the buyers interested in these properties, and this was a very spirited auction on both properties, quite frankly. So I think it's just a good example that in the environment that we're in, there's plenty of people out there that do think it's a good time to buy. And so for what it's worth.
0: In fact, all three of these were reminders. Every sale that we've had in the past six weeks, I guess, have been reminders to us and to our company that it's not... Our place to make decisions for buyers and sellers as to whether, you know, this is the right environment for them to be selling in or transacting in, rather offering our service. There are sellers that want to sell today. There are buyers that want to buy today. And, you know, regardless of the uncertainties that exist in the market, there's certainly a place with these examples pinpointing it that buyers and sellers are matched, right? That want to accomplish those goals
1: we were very early on in in a moving to a 100% digital auction experience. On occasion we still do a live auctions and there's nothing better than a, a a spirited well-attended live auction. However, there's nothing worse than a not well attended live auction. And so our default for all the properties that we take on today is, you know, we're going to do a digital auction. What we've learned about today's affluent buyer is the vast majority of them at some point will go more often than not see the property, but then they go back to whatever else they're doing in the world and the ability to bid from their iPhone, from the convenience of their home or office or wherever they are is really valuable to them. And also the transparency. Digital auction is incredibly transparent because every single bid is acknowledged and clerked. There's a total history of who the bidder was, you know, what their bid was. So we think that transparency is also really important. And also, you know, our average transaction is about five and a half million dollars. So it's a large purchase for somebody, we've developed the viewpoint that most people like the ability to be talking with their spouse or their agent or their, or their representative and being able to decide and talk about, do they want to place another bid versus kind of being in a, in a place where they're, they're feeling pressured and maybe they don't do anything.
0: The last case study we have in here is this one in Malibu.
1: This is a property that we sold in conjunction with Rodrigo Iglesias and Rick Hilton at Hilton Highland. This is a you know fabulous property, although it was a property that really in need of a substantial renovation. So very specific and unique buyer pool had previously been on the market for five years you know this property fetched 11.2 million to a buyer out of our database from Dallas just a good example of you know certainly when we talk about our value add you know certainly when you look at our goals around a typical property three to 500 inquiries 25 to 50 you know buyers doing a very deep dive uh, and then five to seven bidders, where the demand comes from is important so typically a third of the demand is going to come from you know the existing market within reason we tend to make properties more elastic and what i mean by that is the allure of a unique property at potentially a great buy forces or causes buyers who maybe were looking in santa barbara or looking in san diego or orange county or cabo to say well let's take a look at this property in malibu so the, a third of the demand is really aggregating buyers who are actively or passively looking in a region and you know, really differentiating a property from all the others saying, this is the best opportunity in the market. It's going to sell on a certain date in all likelihood. So it's now or never. So that's an important part of, of the equation. The second part of the equation is our database. And one of the things that we did early on was invested significantly in a very robust technology platform with a lot of, today it's called artificial intelligence at the time. uh, That really wasn't such a a buzzword, but a, a central database so that every time we sell a property, the database grows and enriches. So it's one common database across our entire platform rather than being siloed by market or by Property and what's happened is one property at a time. You know, you know, this year we're on pace to sell somewhere around 200 properties. When a database grows at that clip every single time, three to 500 inquiries, 25 to 50 shillings, five to seven bidders, who we actually learn you know a lot about their interest level and their qualification level, it's resulted in a database with over 600,000 contacts. There are approximately 100,000 weekly subscribers. We have about 10,000 people in our private client group that we've transacted with on a monthly basis. We communicate with about 250 billionaires in the U.S. Uh, we've transacted with around 60 of those people. Um, so the database is producing anywhere from a third to 50% of the demand that we bring a given property. And you know we've invested tens of millions of dollars in marketing over the last decade. So even if you wanted to recreate that database, even if you had the money, the 20, 30, 40 million bucks it would take to do so, it's hard to replicate. And then the third thing is we have a full-time marketing team that is led by our chief marketing officer, Crystal Abbey, one of the, the brightest thinkers in the real estate industry. And that team is expertly positioned to take a property that wants to come on our platform and in a week to ten days, sometimes faster, in conjunction with our broker partner, package up that property that needs to be repositioned, whatever we need to do, and then we conduct a robust marketing and PR and sales campaign, and that will will be the third component of the demand that we bring. You know, we don't charge upfront for that. One of the norms in the auction business is, you know, a seller would write a significant one to two percent of the list price check upfront to underwrite the marketing. we have the kind of scale and resources that we don't need to do that. And we quite frankly know the things that work. So it's really the mix of all three things that works in terms of generating sales for our sellers and and broker partners.
0: We wanted from here to open it up for everyone on the call to Speak up if you have something that you'd like to talk about or ask. First question, Chad, I'll let you take this. I'll tee it up for you. This person says, what I'd like to know is what is the cost to sell via auction?
1: We do not charge any upfront fees to take a property on. Obviously, we want to make sure that we have a meeting of the minds with the seller and the agent about what's a realistic range of outcomes. We're going to rely certainly heavily on the local broker partner to help us get educated on what's a realistic sale price for a given property. But we have a global purview and especially in the tippy top of the market, definitely have a regional purview about what are things selling for in given markets. So before we sign an agreement with a seller, we'll do an analysis in conjunction with a local broker partner to come up with what we think a realistic range of outcomes is for the seller, present that to the seller. And, and then the, one of the second questions is you know, auction formats. We'll talk about that next, but arrive at what the proper or most effective auction format is going to be for that property in that market. And then start the process but in simple terms in the in in the very upper end of the market so 10 million dollar plus properties very straightforward the seller is responsible for honoring their listing agreement with their listing agent which in almost all instances accommodates a co-broke commission for a buyer representative who brings a buyer and then the buyer pays our fee we charge a, a buyer premium on top of what somebody bids on the property. It's 12%. And that's how we earn our fee. If a seller in a without reserve auction format at the end, prior to the commencement of bidding, and we'll talk about that nuance because I think it's really important. You know, one thing, it's a golden rule is if we have a without reserve auction and the seller authorizes the commencement of bidding, then that property is going to sell to a buyer, right? There's no turning back. We have a lot of safeguards in place to protect our sellers. We have a compliance team actually get on the phone with the seller before the commencement of an auction, asking them to authorize the commencement of their auction. We have a unique opening bid process where prior to the commencement of bidding and without reserve auction, we have what are called opening or starting bids. A seller can go into an auction knowing what the highest opening bid is. And by definition, that's the lowest the property can sell for. Of course, The more competition, usually the better the price. If for whatever reason as a seller elects to not move forward with their auction, and this is something we agree upon upfront, we'll ask them to reimburse us a portion of the expenses that we, sales and marketing expenses that we conducted on their behalf. Usually we'll split that with a seller. We're very transparent. Our core values would be very transparent with our sellers and be very realistic with expectation setting upfront. So, but normally if for whatever reason, a seller elects not to move forward. And once again, we're in the business of selling control, but that means if the seller just changes their mind or a seller, you know, decides, Hey, if that's where the market value for my property is today, I'd rather keep it. It's their right to do so. So I think that's important to note.
0: Chad, earlier in the chat, there's a question from Greg about what happened to 818 Hot Springs in Santa Barbara. I know you're yeah. close to that one
1: happy to discuss that. So that was late February, early March auction, right in the beginning of the COVID crisis. And it's the one transaction, knock on wood, that we've had in the last 60 days that we had an auction, had a winning bidder, and the buyer backed out. They backed out because of COVID. I'm glad this was being recorded. And I hope the whole industry, you know, is watching this because this is like, you know, the golden rules for us are, if a seller green lights their no-reserve auction, we're gonna expect them to sell to the winning bidder. The other side of the equation, if a buyer bids and they don't honor their high bid, then we have to pursue them because obviously that's the integrity of our platform. So to participate in in our auctions, we require for most properties, $100,000 bidder deposit for the very, very high-end properties. When we sell 50, $100 million listed properties, sometimes it's 250 or half a million. So a, a deposit to third-party escrow, we work with Fidelity title globally, submit a $100,000 deposit. The second thing is provide proof of funds that they're a qualified buyer, that they can spend up to a certain amount. And then the third thing is they sign the terms and conditions of sale. And the terms and conditions of the sale are a very straightforward document, but it basically says this is an as-is transaction. You've done any and all due diligence prior to bidding. If you're the winning bidder, the day after the auction, you need to sign the purchase and sale contract, which is posted in advance in our diligence room. There's no negotiation of that. Certainly review it you know, to your heart's content before you bid. And then within 48 hours, post a secondary deposit of an additional 10%. So in the case of that property, that, that bidder is going to lose a, you know, pretty substantial deposit 10% of six or $7 million, a lot of money. And on occasion, it does happen, but doesn't happen very often.
0: One of the other questions is back to fees, not charging the upfront fee, but then if the seller decides not to move forward with the auction, yep. what's the no sale fee? So Bill asked that. Thanks, Bill.
1: Sure. We kind of dissect the landscape into five price points. So twenty five million and up, ten to twenty-five, five to ten, two and a half to five, and then under two and a half million. So we through the years have figured out how much we need to spend in each of those tiers to be effective at generating the three to five hundred inquiries that we're shooting this for the 25 to 50 shillings and the five to seven bidders, We have a kind of a template budget for each tier. And then normally in a given price point, we'll ask to get reimbursed half of what that budget was. So for an average property, we'll get reimbursed plus or minus $50,000, which is about half of what our costs were. You know, and a more expensive property, would be more and a less expensive property would be less. I will tell you, it's not the most important thing to us, but it's not zero because then the seller is not going to value what we're doing. But it's something that if we're convinced that we have a high quality property, we have a seller who's a realistic seller and a listing agent who's willing to collaborate with us. Those are the things that we look at more than a cancellation fee. It's not a profit center for us. We lose money if property doesn't sell. And quite frankly, we don't want that, you know, for a seller.
0: So Donna chatted that she has a historic home 20 miles from Sedona. Will this location be a problem in a time when people are not traveling?
1: Certainly for sellers, sellers are on this call. I think the three kind of references we have for something like this that really rock our world, certainly 9-11, certainly, you know, the financial crisis in 08 and 09, I also think people kind of forget that the flash crash in 12 definitely jarred the market those are three things and what we noticed in all those situations is in the 90 days after things stabilized there was a snapback in a good way of some pent-up demand of buyers who were ready to make a move and then after the dust settled we saw prices kind of stagnate or in some cases decline so You know, our worldview is, is that the second quarter of this year, it's going to be a good time. If you want to sell, I think it's going to be a good time. Certainly we're equipped to sell properties to people sight unseen. It happens a lot for us, but we also think that, you know, things are going to be opening up and people are going to be getting back out there. Laura talked about our advisory board call yesterday. We're talking with Matt Beal in Hawaii that's on really a major lockdown. If you land there on a commercial flight, you have to self-quarantine for 14 days. However, there's a traffic jam of private jets. What that's telling you is that affluent people are out and about and going to nice places to be. Short answer is love to learn more about your Sedona property. We've got a great track record of success in Arizona. Once again, in this might, our thesis around a lot of people are going to be attracted to more room and big sky and things like that. So mm-hmm. we'd love to learn more.
0: Yeah. And also I'll touch on to the point of people not being able to travel to see the properties. And we also just had a question about people purchasing strictly by 3D virtual tours. Our marketing and technology team have certainly been stepping it up as have most others in the industry to offer even more virtual tours. We're having events at the property where the salesperson can walk people around real time with the camera to show the property. Um, Technologies like Matterport where it's an immersive experience online. One property that we just launched a new one for in Texas is up on our site right now where it's similar to Google Earth, where you can just walk through, click your mouse around it to, to see everything. Of a 3D floor plan, if you will. So, those kind of experiences really do help a lot of people to answer the question of whether we sell, you know, sight unseen with those. Yes, we do. And we have even more so in the past month than, than historically. But even historically, about 30% of our bidders bid without having set foot in the property. So, this is not something that is new to us, which is good. You know, we've been able to work in a atmosphere where not everybody comes, but also they often will send someone on their behalf. So whether it's a local real estate agent, I think agents should get more prepared than ever to be that eyes and ears of your clients, because they're going to rely on you, especially those that you've worked with to view other properties before to go and see the homes for them and give them the okay, in your opinion, based on what they're looking for. And some people send, you know, designers or architects or what have you on their behalf. So Not everyone who hasn't set foot in the property doesn't have like a direct contact that has for them, but it's possible.
1: Before COVID-19, when you did a live auction on site with an auctioneer, did you open up the auction online three days before to build momentum or wait to the daily auction? It's a great question. So as I mentioned, the vast majority of our auctions are open for a period of 72 hours. One thing that we know, whether it's a live auction or an online auction, most of the activity will occur in the last 30 minutes. eBay's train the whole world on that but we're really purposeful about the 72 hours because one of the things first and foremost our job is to get the best price for our seller and at the end of the auction we want to be able to you know say to them look we left no stone unturned and we got the very best price one of the things that we've learned about the 72 hours is it allows us to go back one more time to the prospect list to the marketplace and say if you thought this wasn't happening no it is And even more so to be able to say transparently, here's where the bid is for this property. So, you know, it's not going to sell for less than this, but if you like it at this number or slightly more, or maybe a lot more, you need to get registered. This is really an important part of activating that. And especially, I think it's a big part of our success. The other question is, the question is a great question. If property doesn't sell at auction, for whatever reason, the property goes back on the market, does the property have a stigma? Does it make it more difficult to sell? I think it depends on the market. I was talking to a seller in New York City today about that very question. And it's a big town, lots of noise. It's hard to get people's attention there for any reason. And so, I think it's less of an issue. I think in a small t- town, smaller kind of boutique market, I think it can be a bigger issue. And I think it's more, it's why we're so deliberate with sellers around setting their expectations upfront. And the properties that don't sell are rarely because we haven't brought the market to a property. It's we didn't weed out a seller who was perhaps not as realistic as they needed to be. That's why we're very diligent about that. And I come back to if we generate three to 500 inquiries and 25 to 50 showings and five to seven bidders, it's hard to argue that that's not the market price for that property in that day. The other thing that we do, and this is another advantage of the electronic auction, to protect our sellers in case a winning bidder doesn't perform within 72 hours after the end of the auction, if the winning bidder doesn't have their deposit and contract in, and we reserve the right to reserve, award the property to the second highest bidder. There's a nuance there, which is it has to be a result in the net proceeds being the same to the seller. So what that usually means is we end up reducing our fee slightly to to make that happen. But you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's very unusual for us once an auction opens to not have a successful sale. The ones that don't sell are pretty much where a seller just isn't comfortable and they don't move forward. And I would say that's as much our fault as theirs. Like we really should try to weed that out in advance. What do you say to sellers that think in auctions only for sellers who need a fire sale? So when we started this business 12 years ago, we were like plan D or E after they burned through every broker in the market, tried price reductions, tried all the gimmicks, and they would land with us. We've seen average days for a seller coming to us, you know, shrinking dramatically. In fact, a big percentage of our business is Properties going straight to auction without going on market. In conjunction with a local broker, I might add, once again, we're in the Zillow world and days on market are a problem. And the fresher the merchandise, the more interest. It doesn't mean we can't overcome that, but ideally the shorter the days on market, the better. I think the other thing is, is that if we've in market by market, typically, especially in the upper tier, the property we sell will be the highest sale in that market in a given, certainly quarter, quarter, month, year, decade, you know, we're used to setting records and also the caliber of our sellers. Most of our sellers do not have mortgage debt. So they're not selling for any reason other than they want to sell. You know, the best quote on that was in early on, we sold a property for share in Hawaii and the LA times asked her why you auction your property and her quote was, you know, because I can. What she meant by that is I don't want to deal with people going through my stuff and my privacy, you know, that's important. As I mentioned, we sold properties and transacted with over 50 billionaires that are selling because they want to sell with us. And so that's really changed a lot. And also in other categories, other high-end assets like cars, art, wine, watches have evolved towards the marketplace auction methodology. It's not something that we we see a lot in terms of like distressed sellers. In fact, we try to avoid them.
0: And then would we recommend auction in an area where there's a deep, deep recession.
1: It's a good question. It all comes back to if I'm a seller, what matters is the net present value of the sale. Certainly if it's a second home, but one thing, that's like a house and you're raising a family or you're living there and you need shelter. We all need shelter. But if you have a home that it's bigger than you need or more expensive than you need or second home that you're not using, the question is, what can you do with those proceeds? And think a couple of things that that what I would say is, and I I laugh a lot of times on a plane after I tell people I sell control then I'll say and by the way don't buy a second home right even though I make put food on the table selling a lot of second homes so the reality is that if if you're enjoying it and using it then great but if you're not you know taking those resources and putting them the work more productively i think is a smart business decision and a lot of times you know we'll look at a seller and say okay 180 days has gone by and you haven't sold the property so now looking at in your market, and it varies by market, let's say it's three years to get 70% of your list price. So the question is, one, if you had 70% of what you're gonna get in three years today, what can you do with the money? what does your financial advisor tell you that, that you know you can do with that in terms of more productivity or better return and i think most importantly types of properties that we sell are special things and even if you have staff and caretakers and whatever else you bought it because you loved it and so you're not going to neglect it but if you're not using it i think the cost associated with having something you don't want anymore on top of the fact that fiscally you know you probably can put the money to work elsewhere i think getting the best price you can get today is better than not, and I do think again. I don't have a crystal ball, and you know I'm an optimist. People who know me personally know that. I think positively all the time about you know, in the long run, our country is going to do great. But I do think that after the dust settles with this COVID thing, that the back half of this year, not to mention a presidential election, going to be tough. And so, if you can get a good price today, get it. That's that's my advice to people.
0: We have two other questions that came in through email that I want to make sure that we get to. How does a no-reserve seller mitigate risk that the property sells much below expected value? And is there a maximum reserve as a percentage of a listing that we will accept?
1: Great questions. So let's talk about the reserve first. So we do both reserve and without sales both can be effective. One of the misnomers about a reserve auction is sellers sometimes think, well, I should just, that's the minimum number I'm willing to take. And in theory, yes, that's the case. It's really the wrong way to look at it. And the way that I would encourage you to think about that is put your buyer hat on or your broker hat on and say, okay, I'm gonna expose this property on the concierge platform and it's gonna generate three to 500 eyeballs, 25 to 50 showings and five to seven people. And if we have a reserve set you want an educated buyer to say, of course it's going to sell for that number and I'd love to own it there and I'm ready to compete. Versus if you set it a slightly too high number a material percentage of those buyers start to ask the question, well, what if it doesn't sell or can I buy it for less? And that's when you know you get the reserve wrong. So it's you know certainly case by case, market by market, but that's important. In a without reserve sale, which certainly is the most potent thing and i think that's also there's some markets where there's comps when there's comps a reserve sale can work because you can arguably set a reserve at a threshold that's attractive and compelling to the market sometimes whether you have a property where there's no precedent nothing's sold for that price point or there's not a lot of activity i would argue that without reserve approach is better because the number, the guide price that you're giving is the asking price. But of course, we have mechanisms in place to safeguard a seller. It's important. We certainly, once a seller, and without reserve auction, authorizes the commencement of bidding, we're going to expect them to sell the property. However, prior to that, we have a, a, a early bidder registration deadline. So imagine if a property, if an auction typically ends on a Thursday, Monday night, the bidder early bidder registrations are due. And we'll present those to a seller with a list of who the bidders are by name, what their wherewithal is, their qualifications, and the list of of their opening bids. And as a seller in a without-reserve auction, if you greenlight your auction, you know the property is going to sell at least for the highest opening bid. And we certainly have analytics on a market-by-market basis for where we think or what the projected outcome will be. But those opening bids are binding and irrevocable, so as a seller, uh, to to a buyer, to that bidder. So as a seller you're protected knowing you know where you're starting and they can't sell for less than that number.
0: Okay, so Bill asks, do we usually sell to locals or to distant people out of the area? So we, we do both. I mean, one of our biggest value propositions as a company is our database. So I know we've mentioned it a couple times on this call, but we have over 640,000 people that we've acquired um, into our database through the 11 years that we've been in business. And on any given property today, 30 to 50% of the bidders are coming directly out of our database. So they've either transacted with us before, or they've been watching our sales and been prepared to transact and and waiting for the right thing to come along. So 30% to 50% come out of the database. A good portion of the bidders, usually about a third of the bidders also come out of the local market in that they've, they've seen the property before or they've been looking for something um, similar to the property. What's interesting about an auction opportunity though is that it actually can help to expand the local buyer base to bring buyers with interest um, to homes that they may not have fit within their parameters previously. So a buyer that was solely looking for something that had five bedrooms, but a property comes up for auction and it has four instead, that buyer may be re-engaged um, and introduced to that property. So definitely buyers still come from the local market pretty often. I mean, more often than than sellers sometimes think, you know, that the buyer is percolating out there that they didn't even know about. And then the remaining demand comes from what we call net new. It's brand new interest to the property, to us that comes through our marketing. So we use a variety of different marketing channels outside of our database. So be it, um, you know, print advertising, radio advertising, digital advertising, et cetera, and bring buyers, you know, up with interest. And what's been really fun as we've grown as a company and our geographic reach is that we often will have buyers come forward for a property that is in a totally different market that when they finally transact, they, they buy something that we didn't expect for them to purchase. So one of my favorite stories is we had a buyer that came, came to our database from a property in Fiji and he was kind of dormant in our database from a, a act, an active, um, perspective. So he was watching email alerts as they went out, et cetera, for about four years. And then after that four year period, he raised his hand to bid on a property in the Rocky mountains. I think it was park city, maybe Chad. And, um, so this bidder that came in on Fiji, we had no idea that he would be interested in something in the Rocky mountains bids in park city. And he was not the high bidder. He didn't win. And he then continued to bid in multiple different, um, mountain markets and ended up buying in, um, I think it was Big Sky after, you know, bidding in Park City. So we just never know, especially at this um, tippy top of the market that, that we work in. Um, those of you who either buy, sell or represent clients in this, um, this echelon, you know, many of these clients own multiple properties, and they could be purchasing and selling in, in any of these geographies on any day.
1: I guess a good one for an agent. What kind of seller should we approach to consider an auction of a property? For those of you who are agents, you all know when you get that phone call and they say, Hey, Bill, like what do I need to do to move this property? And that's better than the phone call of Bill, I love you. You're the godson to my daughter, but I gotta make a change, right? That's the worst call a listing agent can get. And I've back in the day, I got a few of those, and everybody in the business you know has and it's you you want to avoid those of course but when a seller says what do i need to do to move this and when you say to yourself you know what a price reduction is not going to make a difference i can't tell you how often we see a property is on for 20 million and they cut the price to 235 and there hasn't been a sale above 15 in that market in 5 years it's not going to do it and so rather than do that which i think can potentially devalue the property and train buyers to wait for the next price reduction it's to say You know what let's explore this and i gotta tell you we're we're picky we we talk to 20 sellers for every property we take and it's not that we're better than anybody else it's not about that but it's about quality properties but most importantly a seller who is good with a range of outcomes and i say this to sellers all the time with a seller the other day and she has a nine million dollar listed property and the analysis in conjunction with the local broker said it's going to sell somewhere between six and a half and $8 million. And I said, this is a good fit for you is whether we get six and a half or $8 million, other than eight's better than six and a half, that your life is the same the day after closing that it was the day before. For a seller who wants speed, they want certainty, and they're willing to live with a reasonable range of outcomes versus a seller that's, you know, says, you know what, like I've got $28 million in this house, and I'm not taking a penny less than that, it may not be the right fit for, for an auction.
0: Another point for agents, I know mean, Kristen just sent a message. Kristen Ruth Silberman is one of our preferred agent advisors. And so she's on an advisory board from Las Vegas. So she says, what are your thoughts on key messages to talk to sellers about concierge during the COVID crisis? Actually, I'm going to back up a step and then we'll talk about during the COVID Crisis. First off, we also are happy to pay referral fees to agents all day long. So, whether it's your listing that you have, if you're an agent or you know another listing in your market, whether it's in your office or outside of your office, talking to that other agent about us and making an introduction to us, we're happy to kick you back a referral fee on that deal. So, first and foremost, please bring those um, introductions to us. As far as talking to the clients during COVID, we have materials that we've put together about the fact that concierge can be a great solution in any type of uncertain atmosphere. Yesterday, also, John McMonigle from LA, he brought up that, you know, especially in today's environment, it's hard for agents to know the value of properties, right? What someone's willing to pay for it, um, what value it should be listed for. And so that's one thing that the auction process does very well is, is we help to identify value, especially for properties that don't have a lot of comparables or if there's an uncertain market like today. So that would be a first thing that I would say could be discussed with other agents. If there's uncertainty around value and or the seller has a need or a want to have a sale within a certain time frame, And then the third thing is to expand the buyer pool of interest. Especially in today's environment, I think that there's uncertainty around what the future holds right? So figuring out how to get what you can today and then move on could be the right strategy for a lot of sellers of which the auction format speeds that up. Another thing is that in today's environment, there's certainly a lot of personal and professional change for everyone in the world going on right now. And change usually comes with more people wanting to sell their real estate. So, you know, we deal often with the D's, right? Death, divorce, debt, you know, people who have been, you know, disposition changes of their lifestyle. So, one, Thing that we do expect is that there will be heightened inventory, you know, as COVID starts to close out, more people that want to take advantage of the atmosphere and trade up into a more expensive home and sell their lesser expensive home or consolidate their financials and move into a smaller home. So there likely will be more homes coming on the market. And in order to beat that, and or stand out in that atmosphere. Um, An auction process helps to put a spotlight on your one particular property amidst the other inventory that's out there and to create that time certain sale. Next week, we will be launching blocktalknow.com, which is going to be the website to host all of our podcasts. And it also will include dates for the upcoming webcasts like this one. So you can also visit conciergeoptions.com, find out more information about us. And thanks again for joining everyone. Have a great weekend and happy Easter, happy Passover, whatever you're celebrating or being at home with your family. Enjoy.